Today's show is sponsored by HostGator. HostGator is your one-stop website shop. HostGator makes it simple to get your professional website online quick. Plans start at just $3.47 per month. Let's face it, getting a good .com is hard to do. A .net domain, powered by VeriSign, on the other hand, still has a ton of awesome names. You have your domain. Now it's time to build your website. Use HostGator's drag-and-drop builder or WordPress. No need to code. HostGator makes it easy. Get your site up and running with just a few clicks. Head over to HostGator.com. Buy some hosting, get some .nets, and use coupon code WRITERS30. That's WRITERS and the number 30 to get an extra 30% off and support this show. Please support this show by going to HostGator. That's HostGator.com where you get a .NET domain powered by VeriSign. Thanks to everyone who said such nice things about the last two podcasts, the Sesame Street interviews, uh, both with the writers and the ones in the Muppet Workshop and the Colbert Report interviews. Uh, those were both so much fun to do, a real pleasure. Um, part of the Sesame Street interview was lost at the workshop. I got to talk to Raleigh Cruson, uh, who's been a designer there for about 30 years, uh, 40 years. And uh, unfortunately, the audio didn't come out. But I sent Liz Hara, who works there and who got me, gave me access to everyone in the first place, to pick up that interview because Raleigh had a lot of great things to say. Uh, she's been instrumental in designing a lot of the Muppets you know and love. Uh, so I won't waste any more time. Uh, I'll throw this right to the quick interview that Liz did with Raleigh Cruson, and then we'll go right over into the Night Vale panel. Thanks so much for listening. As ever, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Hi, this is Liz Hara, and I am here with Raleigh Cruson at the Jim Henson Workshop. Uh, my name is Raleigh Cruson, and I'm a master puppet builder at the Jim Henson Company. Uh, Raleigh, can you tell me how you got started in this business? Um, I came as an intern in 1973. Uh, I, was the, I was their first intern that they'd ever had. So that was fun because they didn't know what to do with me. So I got to do a lot of stuff that probably interns don't get to do now or don't want to do now. <laughs> um, and I, I, they actually hired me when I finished school um, to come back. So it was like a, I, I interned for about four months and went back and finished my senior year and then came back in the summer. So I've been here on staff since 1974. And I'm a fossil. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me some of the more exciting projects that you've worked on while you've been here? Ooh, that's hard. There's been so many. Um, I got to create characters for Fraggle Rock. I've worked on a lot of the films. Uh, got to make Fizzgig for uh, Dark Crystal and worked on Labyrinth. So, you know, and it's been and Muppet Show, of course, and... So it's been TV, movies, it's been a lot of different stuff, and now mostly Sesame Street. 
And what is your process for Sesame Street? How do you go about creating characters for that? Um, a lot of it's writer-based. Um, the writers will come up with a script, and then we'll make um, anything Muppets that look like what they want. You know, it'll be a delivery person or, you know, whatever. Uh, sometimes they write in new puppets, so... A lot of that we get to, unless it's something really specific and the writer says, oh, it has to have bright red hair and be, you know, it has to look like, you know, a particular lobster or something. Um, we get to do a lot of the actual designing of the puppets. So I, and I'm not really great with drawing, so I just go into it 3D and just go, run with it. Uh, what kind of changes have there been over the years? When I first worked on Sesame Street, um, Carolee used to, uh, Wilcox used to kind of, everything used to be kind of her design. Um, and now it's not, it's more individual, I think. Um, although the writers seem to have more of a say in it than they used to. And sometimes the writers don't read their email, so. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a last-minute sort of scurry to kind of change things because all of a sudden they will read their email and they'll see a picture and they'll go, no, that's not what we want at all. We want this. So, you know, so it's a little bit of back and forth. Mm -hmm. What about technological changes in terms of how you make the puppets? Um, a lot of it's, I mean, we use a lot of the same materials, but, of course, TV has changed in that it's now HD and... We used to be able to pin everything on the puppets, you know, which made it easier for them to change out eyes if they didn't like something. Um, but now everything has to be stitched on because you can see everything. So you see the, the heads of pins. So it, it's like once it's on there, it takes a while to get everything off. So in some ways, um, making the Anything Muppets has gotten more difficult just because it takes longer. Uh, when you're making the puppets, who all do you get feedback from? It sounds like it's really a collaboration. It is. I mean, Jason Weber is my is the uh, head of the workshop and the creative director, so he has a lot of say in it. Um, the writers do, the producers do, sometimes the performers do. So it's a big, you know, it's 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 a lot of working together. Even though you don't see these people, you get emails all over the place from people. Yeah, actually, how much influence do the puppeteers have on what you make? Um, it de if it's a main character, they they will put in their two cents. Um, I had a I'm making a letter fifteen. Number 15, sorry. Number 15 for Carmen um, for a show. And she wanted to make sure, I, I'm trying to remember what she, she called and said, oh, you know, it's a, is it going to be easy to use? Is it going to have a rubber band mouth or is it going to have a real mouth? I said, no, it's going to have a real mouth because it's a character that goes throughout the show. So rubber band mouth doesn't do much. There's no emoting from a rubber band. So I assured her that it would have a real mouth. So, yeah, I mean, they do come with their concerns. I, um, sometimes it's not cast until later, so it'll, you know, you build a lobster and it's, you know, anybody could be doing it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times there's no feedback that way. Mm -hmm. How much interaction do you know if there's what interaction there is between the writer and the puppeteer? I, I don't. I imagine I'm they... I'm curious now. Uh, yeah, I am too. 
I bet they, I bet they talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think if it were sp- specifically, you know, like a, a cookie show or a yeah. Grover show yeah. that, that I'm, I, I know Eric is very particular, so I would think he would have a lot to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you tell me a little bit about uh, the old workshop and the different floors and... Um, we used to work at, um, on 67th Street in Manhattan, and we were in a building that had, uh, we were on the second floor with storage, uh, the third, fourth, and fifth floor were our floors, um, and originally we had the second floor and then the fourth and fifth floor. We didn't have the third floor. The third floor was a, a lab that did all sorts of blood work and all sorts of weird stuff. So, and then when they moved out, we got that floor as well. So the main puppet building started being done on the fourth floor. And then Sesame came in and went to the fifth floor. And then that was Sesame and large costumes were fifth floor and the di- and Jason's die area. And then our floor was puppet building and Mechie guys. And then the third floor was all the like spray room and um, that's where the foam lab was, and then more puppet builders. <laughs> so it was, it was, it, and each floor had its own personality, you know. So, and, and if you went to the other floor, people would get intimidated, you know. <laughs> it's like, you knew uh, every once in a while, Stefan would be acting out on the fifth floor. So, you know, you'd creep up there and go, and run back to your own floor. <laughs> and how many times has the workshop moved? Um, let's see. Okay, we started out at 201 East 67th. Then we moved into the mansion on 69th Street. Then we moved back to 201. Then we moved to 627. Then we moved to the carriage house on 67th Street for a couple of months because mm-hmm. the Queen's Place wasn't ready yet. So we've been bounced around and then a couple of times it was both in the mansion and at 201 and at the carriage house because at some point they were building um the um the plant for um little shop yeah that was my first job yeah that's right so there was a yeah we were spread out all over the place uh and but the show's always well not always but has been at Kaufman Astoria Studios for it's been there for a long time, but it started out in Manhattan on okay. 81st on the west side. Okay. So what was it like before you were so close to the studio? Because now it's... So it was... You had to... It, it's a lot easier to go and get stuff now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot easier to forget something and be able to run and get it. Otherwise, it was like a 45 to an hour minute, you know, commute to get mm-hmm. back to the studio. So it was... We'd always have a pickup in the morning, but yeah, it was it was more difficult. Yeah, were you able to make changes the way that we do now? Just oh, we need not as much. We need golem hair. <laughs> yeah, no, not 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 so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what have been some of your favorite puppets that you've built? Um, let's see. Well, I love this gig. This gig was fun, and that because he was so many different things. I mean, when he was like a ball of fur, and he was had no mouth, and he had one with a great big mouth, and so, and there were all different ways to use him. Um, I think pup. I liked Wembley a lot, just because I felt that he really, you know, every once in a while you get a puppet that just works for you, you know, and it's easy to do, and it's like it just sort of pops up. Then there was another. There was. 
one that was a, a pilot that never developed into anything. I made a guinea pig, James the guinea pig for that. And he was, he would just kind of came out. <laughs> <laughs> but he'll probably never get seen by anybody. Mm. But he was, he was a favorite. Yeah, how often does stuff get cut? A lot. Gets all the time. All it gets the cut time. all the time. <laughs> Specifically <laughs> yesterday. Uh-oh. What got cut yesterday? They didn't use, I think they used maybe half of the grouches. Oh, no. And Sierra, really? I'm sorry, they didn't use your punch bowl. So many props <gasps> got cut. They didn't use the punch bowl. No, because they were short on time, so they just barreled, they barreled through stuff. And, We'll, we'll sneak it in later, I promise. What is, is there much of a difference between building for movies and building for television? Building for movies, I mean, you have a lot more time. Um, I mean, we had months and months and months. And, you know, stuff that you could normally do for TV and get it done, you'd be, you know, you just have all this time to do it. And it was like sometimes too much time. <laughs> <laughs> so you keep reinventing the wheel. Um, TV is faster, definitely, and I like it better because it's more, I mean, you see it. A movie you got to wait for for so long. I mean, TV, I mean, we're sitting here watching it, you know, as it's being taped, so it's a lot of fun. And then it takes just a few months before it comes out. Do you have as much creative control with movies as you do? No. No, I think movies are, I mean, it's very different because it's very designed and, you know, mm. you really don't, you, you're constantly with the designer back and forth. And this has got a little more freedom. Uh, do you have any favorite puppeteers that you like to build for or favorite writers that you like to build for? I always like to build for Dave Gulls because he was always fun to build for. Bill Beretta's lots of fun to build for. Um, writers, I can't, yeah, not, not so much, just because they, there seem to be so many, especially mm -hmm. for Sesame, it's like, you know, it's all over the place, but, yeah, I mean, Dave was always one I like to build for, and Jim I like to build for as well. What makes them particularly fun to build for? Um, just because they have so much fun with the puppets, you know, they, they really enjoy doing them. I mean, Bill Beretta is always somebody who is, like, takes full advantage of whatever you make for him. And what are, uh, what are some of Bill Beretta's characters? Um, <clears throat> I, I mostly worked with Bill on the animal show, so he did a lot of the different animals for that, so that was, that was fun. And that was when he was pretty new to the company, um, and so he would really you know, take his characters back to his dressing room and, and really work with them, which I was kind of unused to because guys would just kind of go and throw them on and, you know, whatever happened, happened. So, but, and, and lately, I mean, he's, I haven't worked with him for a while, so. Do puppeteers ever get a hold of your puppets and just do things you really do not approve of? I'm sure they do, but <laughs> I, you know, it's like happening over there somewhere, mm -hmm. so... <laughs> What I don't see. <laughs> or even just what they do with the character. Does it just not? Um, no, not usually. Okay. Usually it pretty, it works pretty well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was always really happy with Abby, you know, because I think Leslie does a really nice job with her. She's not too girly, 
you know, she's a little tomboyish. Because I thought when, you know, fairy came, I was, like, going to be like, ah, you know. <laughs> and she's not, you know, it's not that. Mm -hmm. Which is good. Yeah. Ravi, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Life is like a box of chocolates. Unopened. Dusty. And beginning to attract a lot of insects. Welcome to Night Vale. <laughs> Um, my, my name is Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, which is a stage show in the style of old time radio. Thanks. You're, you're very kind. Um, but I'm thrilled to be here uh, as a fan from, from almost the beginning of Night Vale. Um, I'd say I discovered you. Um, <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't we go down the line um, starting? And we like to do something. Instead of ice breakers, we do ice makers. Mm. Um, so, in the order that you consider yourselves most to least important, uh, would you introduce yourselves on the microphones so our podcast listeners will recognize your voices? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Cecil Baldwin, and I. Thank you. Um, and I uh, play the narrator, Cecil. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore your thing and just go down the table mm -hmm. like yeah. this. You know what? You're still doing my thing. Yeah. Hi, I'm Joseph Fink. I made the Night Vale thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeffrey Craner. I co-write the show with Joseph. Hi, I'm Mara Wilson. I play the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home. <laughs> Thank you guys uh, for doing this. I know uh, all the fans, including myself, uh, really appreciated uh, this opportunity to go behind the curtain. Um, I'm certain you've told this story dozens of times, but give us you know, the short version, if you would, uh, Joseph and Jeffrey. Tell us how this show began. Where did it come from? Uh, did it spring fully formed from your brains? Oh, God, I wish. That would have been <laughs> wonderful. That would have been way less work. Uh, yeah, no, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I really love podcasts, and I really wanted to make one, and I wanted to make one with Jeffrey, because I like working with Jeffrey. Um, what were, and um, get ready for me to interrupt you quite a bit, because I want to get into yes, some specifics. Um, what were the things that you were listening to that was kind of getting you inspired and feeling like you could do something I like mean, that? I mean, I listen to so many podcasts. I listen to, uh, there's probably like 30 that I follow off and on. Um, I mean, I listen to a lot of the popular ones, Comedy Bang Wang, Bang Bang Wang. Yeah, Bang Wang. <laughs> it's, a, it's a separate one. It's, it's a spit-off. Um, the porn parody. Sure, right. The porn parody of it. Um, you know, the This American Life, Risk, uh, The Moth, all of those. Mm -hmm. um, the Bugle is really funny. I don't know. I listen to a lot. Um, I just really didn't want to make one that sounded like any of the ones I was already listening to because they existed. And what was the point of doing something that's already being made? Um, and so it took several months, and I came up with this idea of a town where every conspiracy theory was true, and then life just kind of went on from there, which is something I've always been fascinated in. I've always loved conspiracy theories. I don't believe them, but I just find them as amazing stories. As a kid, I used to check library books out about like 
Men in Black and Alien Abductions, and I just loved it. Um, I still like. I love the TV show. Uh, was it Ancient Aliens? I think it's called. <laughs> it's a great TV show. I recommend it. Um, yeah, and so I I wrote the pilot script and I showed it to Cecil and Jeffrey, and I was like, Hey guys, do you want to spend a ton of your free time doing this? <laughs> the end. And they did. Yeah. Um, what was the creative partnership that you guys had prior to this, uh, Joseph and Jeffrey? Jeffrey was there one? Oh, sure. Uh, well, we. Uh, we all know each other through a theater company here in New York called the New York Neo Futurists, and uh, Woo! yeah, yeah. Woo! <laughs> and um, anyway, so Joseph and I got to know each other actually through that, and just kind of mutual admiration of each other's writing, and uh, we got to just hanging out a lot and talking about writing, and uh, and and uh, and then in 2011 we basically were like let's write something together. So we wrote a we wrote a two person play that we co wrote and and performed together uh, at the St Mark's Church in the East Village, and um, yeah, and, and we did that and we enjoyed that a lot. And then uh, yeah, it was shortly after that where Joseph was like, I want to work on a podcast. Let's figure out a podcast thing. And I said, great. And that and then Joseph came back several months later with Night Vale. But yeah, that was that was our that's our mutual understanding. We're five years together. Uh, we've been friends for five I, years. Now. Yeah, because I moved to New York almost exactly five years yeah. ago, mm-hmm. and we met very soon after that. Yeah. And and before we talk about how you brought Cecil in, um, I'm curious about the the subject matter, uh, Joseph. I mean, outside of loving these conspiracy theories, there's obviously a strong horror bent. Is this something that you guys were interested in already? Yeah, it's interesting because I really I love horror movies. I, I watch them all the time. Um, uh, they're like one of my favorite things. Uh, Jeffrey doesn't watch them usually, although you do love David Lynch. Which yeah, uh, yeah, sure, I love. Him. Yeah, really, he that's kind of. I mean, his movies are more terrifying than most scary movies <laughs> yeah. I've seen. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was surprising to me when people started telling me that the show was scary because <laughs> to me the show was never scary. Uh, it just didn't. What is it to you? No, I think I, well, I'll, it's it's the inside of my head. Yeah. <laughs> kind of just there. This is shocking to find that scary to yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would almost I like jumping in on that too because Joseph and I talked early on when we first started putting the podcast out of yeah the, the whether it was creepy or or scary and neither of us felt at any point that it was ever creepy or scary although sometimes we do try for elements of that but as a whole I mean there's something really charming about Night Vale like listening to Cecil's voice there's something very charming about this little town and in a lot of ways like I don't know I find hearing Cecil very comforting like that the fact of the matter is like these really awful things are happening but for the most part he's upset at (laughs) Steve Carlsberg right not like not 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 tendrils sweeping into people's apartments or like this giant black planet unlit by any sun, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that there's something very comforting about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Uh, you guys were lucky to find the right guy for the job. Uh, Cecil, tell us about getting involved with this and receiving that first script. Do you remember what that was like? Um, I'm trying to think back to the pilot script. Um, so I... <clears throat> Um, I was doing Too Much Light Makes a Baby Go Blind uh, with the Neo-Futurists, and I wrote a play which was kind of me ranting about, um, like, since I, you know, like my adolescence, people have come up to me and told me, oh, you have such a great voice, you should totally do radio. You should totally be on the radio. You should totally do commercials. And I was like, yes. Yes, I should. You're right. Are you a casting director? No? Then, okay, well, then we're in the same boat. Um, But the way, like, things are going nowadays, like, 
the the way markets for commercials and stuff they want like Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen, these average everyday guys who just hang out and you know, and that's not me. Like this is my this is how I sound. Like this is just I'm not putting on an announcer voice. So I was relatively unsuccessful in the world of voice acting and uh, I wrote this play that kind of just vented that frustration. And uh, Joseph saw it and and was like and you know, he was like, Yeah, I'll let's let's do this. Um, and and it just worked that his idea was essentially a radio play. Like it was something that is more classic and more theatrical than just like a car commercial or something like that. So he gave me a script and said, here you go. Just, you know, like just give it a try. Um, and, and that's kind of started how we operate, you know, where I'll get a script from these guys and, um, I'll take it to my apartment and sit down in front of my computer and just kind of like work it out little bit by little bit. Um, and you know, it, like I understand the, the concept and I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, yeah. Oh, I remember when I was a kid, I was on, uh, my friends had a public access TV show. Um, and, uh, you know, we like I got that that feeling of like community radio, community TV. Like I really could hook into that and be like, oh, I'm here. I am sports casting the local high school football team. That's great. Except, you know, and then all the weirdness that gets layered in on it, which is, you know, um, what makes it fun for me is that it's just part of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, it really is about the minutia. Uh, was this a, a conscious approach, or is this, again, just the kind of the thing that you find amusing or interesting? Yeah, I, I feel like a big part of the, the whole thing with Night Vale is, um, is that the weirdness is part of every single aspect of life, that no matter how much you zoom in onto any <laughs> mundane aspect of Night Vale life, there's something weird there. And so a lot of the writing is just trying to find those that... Of course, there's big weird things. There's the city council that's weird, and there's the faceless old woman. But there's also just in every single aspect of life, there is weirdness, and that's also true outside of Night Vale. And so trying to find, <laughs> trying to find ways of reflecting kind of the weirdness of real life in, in Night Vale is fun. Absolutely. Uh, I want to get to some of the nuts and bolts of how the show comes together. Uh, but speaking of the faceless old woman, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mara, how did you get involved with this show? Uh, well, I actually I found them through Twitter. Um, I and the thing is, I think the thing that attracted me most was they. I, I think I have. I, I'm I'm a writer too, but I have sort of a fascination with the mundane. I think the mundane is a lot weirder than everybody thinks it is. The things you take for granted, you should really examine again. And that's really what a lot of my writing is. So I, I found these people on Twitter, and they people kept you know retweeting Night Vale Radio. And I, I saw their tweets, and I thought, these are some of the most, not only, I mean, I mean, brilliant for Twitter is one thing, but brilliant for the real world is another thing. <laughs> and these, I thought, wow, these are really insightful and really scary and really beautiful and really existential and really dark and hilarious. And I just started retweeting them and then, you know, realized it was a podcast and started listening to it and just fell in love with it immediately. And, you know, I was listening to it on the subway and just laughing hysterically. And, uh, uh, and one of the things I, I, I've had, you know, my, uh, my childhood has given me is is you know the privilege to be able i don't know it's given me a strange sort of clout 
Um, it's not it's not exactly prestige, it's not exactly fame, but it's clout in a way. And I think this might have come from playing like an exceptionally nerdy character. Um, I you know I, I played like a I guess like an intellectual child, and so um, that's something that's that's given me sort of some nerd clout, I guess. And uh, so I contacted them, and also I knew I knew some people from the neo futurists. I'd gone to college with uh, somebody who'd been in neo futurists. I love the neo futurists. I take every friend who comes to New York to see it, and they always love it. And so uh, I basically just. I was fangirling out Mm -hmm. and I sent them a message saying, you know, guys, I I love your show. I think it's great. Uh, If you ever want a voiceover actor, because that's really the only kind of acting I do anymore, I would love to be a part of this. And they wrote me back saying, well, actually, (laughs) yeah. And I knew there were a lot of, there are a lot of, that's that's another thing too. There's the whole talk about strong female characters. There are a lot of strong female characters in Night Vale. Pamela, I I thought like, oh, Pamela Winchell might need a voice, you know, Mayor Pamela Winchell. And then they said, uh, no, actually we could give you the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home. And I thought, oh my God, that is so much better. (laughs) So yeah, but, but I was really drawn to it. I was really drawn to the darkness of it. I was drawn to how, how... The, the weird is mundane, and the mundane is weird. That's, that's something that I really loved about Night Vale immediately. Yeah. And I think that's something that we all respond to as, as fans of the show. Um, when Mara came on board, this was sort of the beginning of the pushing out uh, at the edges of it, right? You hadn't really had many guest voices before. No, uh, just just uh, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kevin was, a, Kevin was the first like actual... Yeah, guest uh, guest voice of like bringing somebody on to do any like significant amount of time on the show and, and be like an acknowledged. And how far into the run was that? Nine, episode nineteen. Yeah, so that yeah. Was a good number of months. Yeah, uh, before that happened, how did you guys decide now's the time uh, to bring in another voice and to start to expand this world, not just through narration but through other characters? Well, well we got this email. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got a direct message on Twitter. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, we had been talking about it some too. I mean, that was the first. That was the thing of bringing Kevin on to, to do the voice of. You know, we, we really wanted to find different ways of adding new voices mm-hmm. to the show, and uh, yeah, just to uh, yeah, just to kind of ex- it helps expand the universe a little bit, right? You just you're adding new voices, and it kind of I think it helps even though it's less time for Cecil on the air. It is more development of Cecil's character too because he can he can react to the people he's mm-hmm. talking to rather than just him telling us what he personally experienced. Yeah, it is a new facet yeah. of the character. Was, well, how was that for you? And how does that recording take place? Um, I, I mean, I love it when we have guest voices because, you know, like Jeffrey said, it's, you know, Cecil is a very fallible radio host <laughs> narrator. Um, you know, can you imagine if, like, I don't know, somebody on MSNBC was like, you know, and now here's the news. I have this cat that's so crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. w- you would just, you would, like, what? What are you doing on the air? So that's kind of where Cecil's coming from. Yeah. But this gives me, like, a tangible, like, when we have Mara or Jessica or Kevin, you know, I, like, interacting with them or commenting on their segments I think lets the audience know that much more about Cecil, the narrator, and how he lives in this world. Um, because again, it's a small town, and presumably everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business, and you know, and that's how small towns operate. Um, so, so sort of to the nuts and bolts of how we do it. Um, uh, from the recording end, I purchased a sixty-dollar microphone <laughs> on Amazon.com. And I plug it into my computer. 
And I record that on GarageBand. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Not many people can do this sort of thing. It's very complex. It's very it's hard. <laughs> it's I, we very apologize hard. for how technical that explanation yeah, is. Yeah, sorry, you guys. There are a lot of um, forms to fill out if you want a podcast. That's sure, right. sure, yeah. Um, yeah, for guest voices, those are recorded in uh, the office I share with my girlfriend. Yeah. Like That's kind of in my apartment. Um, the office is approximately the size of this table. Um, do, you, do you guys direct... I mean, obviously, and, and Cecil, you've explained that, you know, you kind of do the actor's work of taking the script apart and figuring yeah. out your... really your motivation for each piece. Do you guys direct the actors? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been sort of... My experience with it is that the writing kind of directs itself. Uh, I've read it, and I, I remember going in the first time I had a piece, and I, I asked Joseph, I was like, okay, do you want me to do it like this, or maybe like this? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, okay. Uh, so I did it, you know, I read it like one way a little normally, and then I read it one way a little a little creepier. And I think the creepier the creepier made the cut, of course. Um, and then, but then it, it's always felt, it's, it's uh, I've heard voiceover referred to before as a theater of the mind. And that's very much what it feels like when you're doing this. I, I get a very clear image in my head of, of, you know, who I am and who I'm talking to, which is funny because my visual imagination is terrible. Um, so that's, that's, you know, to their credit. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, you, it directs itself. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, um, I was going to say I... You know, what's interesting, I, I reference the podcast itself a lot, where I'll listen to the episode that came out just prior, and I'm like, oh, okay, so we kind of hit a lot of, you know, there's a lot of comedy in that episode, so then I'll take a look at the next script and think, okay, how can we flip this around and take the mundane and make it terrifying, or vice versa, be like, how can we take the mundane and make it funnier, you know, so it's that kind of balancing act, so it rides on both trains, the comedy and the horror. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and from the writing standpoint, how does the show start to, how does an episode start to take shape? Uh, and how long does it take you guys to hammer one out? It sort of depends on how long it takes. It depends on the, on the script itself. Like uh, the Sandstorm episode, uh, the, it was a two-parter, so it was, it was a lot. Uh, a, it's just a lot. It's double the amount of words to write, and and it was also a matter of like trying to connect the two scripts so they paralleled each other, mm-hmm. and so that was much more complex uh, intellectually to write that out to try and it was like a puzzle to try and fit everything together. Do you outline? Um, uh, per, for the f- yes, for me personally, I, I write I write an outline. Like I go back to like seventh grade composition <laughs> or whatever, and I just think, all right, uh, intro, uh, three <laughs> facts that support, and then a conclusion, and let's try that. And, um, yeah, I really, really do start with that. That's really my starting sure. point. And, and those kind of become a five-act structure for me when I write an that episode or structure yeah. that out. Um, and then as far as, uh, you know, and like a story about you is another one that, like, Joseph worked on for, for a really, really long time to hammer that out because it was our first one to kind of take the point of view uh, differently, to go into second person, almost second person. Um, uh, is a really complex uh, and it's a completely different story that we've told uh, than we've told before. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's um, but coming up with the idea for the script. Usually, we already have a seed of things, or Joseph and I, you know, uh, get together and, and just talk about things that we need to talk about. Or here's a storyline I have, and one of us will be like, "That's amazing! You need to write that." Okay, I'm going to do it then, and let's <laughs> let's make this happen. The, the upcoming episode that, that comes out on on Tuesday, whatever the fifteenth is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called cassette, and it's it's an amazing concept, and, and Joseph put it together, and, and it's something it's we've been talking I like, about for. Yeah, it's one I thought up 
months Many ago, months and ago. it was so painful to write it. Yeah. I just kept writing really it, and hard. it was not working the way I had it in my head. And then <laughs> eventually, it I still doesn't. It. It's only like two minutes long. We yeah. never finished <laughs> it. Is that is that par for the course for your process? No, or does it I mean, yeah, I, I I work a little different. So we take turns on scripts in terms of being kind of the writer. Although we we both work on them. Like, well, after you know, we'll, we come to an end of the script, we'll send it to the other person. The other person will. Be like, uh, I'm going to add this line here because I think it makes it creepier or funnier, and I'm going to. I think this plot really doesn't work here. Can we rearrange things? <laughs> um, but yeah, me personally, when I write, I actually don't really outline. Um, I'm more of a editor. I like to just kind of get. I'll, I'll come up with an image or an idea or a single thing I like, and I'll just try and kind of play with that until I have a, a lot of words, and then I'll kind of go back. <laughs> and try and figure out a structure. I'll see, like, where did I end up, and how can I bring that, you know, how can I then impose a structure on what I built so it makes sense as a story? Mm-hmm. Story about you was very much that, where I just kind of had this idea that it was Cecil talking to a you, and I just kind of wrote for a long time and came up with this formless mess, and then very slowly and painfully put it together into a story <laughs> that made sense and kind of picked out images I liked and repeated them. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so that's that's sort of how I, I I don't I don't do the outline beforehand. I, I would find that I don't know. I find I have a hard time doing that, thinking it through before. Um, I just have a couple more questions, and we'll open it up to you guys. So get your questions ready. Um, uh, well, starting here with Mara, and then going down the line, are there particular not characters for you actors necessarily, but aspects of the character you like to play to play, or that you take particular pleasure in? In playing, or are there storylines that you of our were like of our own characters, yeah, or okay uh, that you that you you know found fun or interesting? Uh, yeah, I think it's funny. I didn't realize how creepy the faceless old woman was. She seemed you, kind of endearing to you me. You know her first. name, right? I, I mean, <laughs> I know her name. I know her face. You know, um, no, it, it it felt. And then people kept telling me how creepy she was, and that's actually kind of great because I've always wanted to be creepy. Um, that is I, actually the only episode that creeped me out. Yeah, like, usually I'm not creeped out. By I episode, actually I, I listened to it, and I and and I, I like one step removed. And I was like, that doesn't sound like my voice. That's kind of uncanny, actually. And, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, I have to wonder if like, the people who are friends with me listen to it, or my, my, like my little sister loves the show, if, if she listens to it and gets creeped out. But, uh, yeah, she's, there's, something very, there's something very intimate about that. There's, it's, very, it's very intimate. It's, very, um, it's, it's such a scary idea, um, but... I always do it, and I and I have this like I, I love her condescension, and and her like like sometimes when I'm reading it, I imagine I'm like talking to some guy named Chad, like Chad, <laughs> really, 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 Chad, you're gonna leave your beard hairs all over the sink. What's wrong with you? Um, and and it's a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey, are there particular characters or storylines or bits that you enjoy writing? In, oh, in more in particular? Yeah. Uh, I mean, lately, I, I've really... Somebody asked me this last night after the live show. In Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. Ignore it's a great question. No, and it's funny. <laughs> no, it was... And I realized it was the first... When, when she asked me, it was the first time anybody had asked me that, which I was very... And it's a great question. And it's, um, I agree. No, I mean, lately, I, <laughs> lately I've... Yeah, you're um, the second one to ask yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you're the first one with a microphone. Um, uh, no, I'm, I've been really fascinated with... Uh, for the last couple months, really fascinated with the, the Dana character. I, I really like Dana a lot. And I... Um, it was Are you guys fun. fans? 
Yeah. 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 And, um, no. yeah, it, after the, the Poetry Week episode, I think it was the one where we had Dana, introduce Dana, and, and uh, ended up with her in the dog park, and I realized shortly thereafter that she was the first intern we didn't kill. <laughs> and, um, uh, anyways, and so the, uh, yeah, and I just, I don't know, became sort of fascinated by, by the idea that, oh, that's really interesting, that, that if, you, if you are a certain type of person that is fated to do something, which in the case of an intern is die in an episode, um, and then somehow you escape that, you are special, and you need to be special, and so she just became a much more special character, and then uh, when we asked uh, Jessica, who's a friend of mine uh, from several years back, to do the show, and once we had her do the voice work, uh, and, we, and I heard it, it she, there's so much gravity to her voice, there, there's so much... Im- She's so sincere sounding, not that anybody else isn't on the show, but there, there's some level of sincerity to what she's saying and how she says it. And she takes the words not necessarily in a funny direction, although there is a lot of humor in her part. But, uh, yeah, it just adds, adds a sort of, like, emotional weight, uh, an emotional heft to the show that I find really fascinating right now. Yeah. Maybe yeah, two months from now I'll have a different answer, but, that, yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking a lot about. Joseph, same question. Uh, yeah, I, I really love Dana. Um, Dana's very much kind of like Jeffrey's thing and that Jeffrey created the character and then was the one who kind of took her into this new direction and so I'm kind of fascinated by Dana. I have a lot of trouble sometimes writing for Dana just because I don't want to get in the way of what Jeffrey, like I I kind of see that as Jeffrey's thing and I don't want to like make any decisions that are going to affect that um, so, like for the live show recently, I was I was writing some stuff for it, and I had to go to Jeffrey. And I'm like, I, can you help me with Dana? Like, I don't know what you kind of want for Dana. <laughs> is that generally um, the rule of thumb for a continuity for you? Not guys? really. I, this is just like we we are happy to like uh, the whole Strex Corp thing. Recently, was something that Jeffrey just sent me the script, and it happened at the end. I'm like, great. Like we didn't <laughs> discuss that beforehand. Um, yeah, we we usually are happy to. It's 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 really just a personal. It's not like hmm. a rule. It's a personal feeling that it's just sort of like I feel like that storyline is something that Jeffrey's kind of going with, hmm. and I don't want to get in the way of that too much. Um, personally, like I really just love being able to take an idea that seems like it has nothing to do with Night Vale that comes into my head, and then try and find a way of making it work. That is really satisfying for me when that happens. Hmm. So I'll just have like an idea that really appeals to me, and I'll start playing with it. And it has nothing to do with any of the storylines we're doing, and I'll just try and find a way. And, I, and the beautiful thing about Night Vale is it's so flexible that you, I usually can. And so having being able to like take this thing that I was working on and find a way to make it work, mm-hmm. um, it's very satisfying. Interesting. Uh, Cecil, are there aspects of Cecil the narrator that you particularly enjoy playing? Um, I love his sincerity and <laughs> his... Um, uh, uh, He's he just seems like a like he's extremely approachable to me. Like he's a very humble and and warm person. Um and again, kind of throwing back to like my roots in like a smaller southern town, like I feel like I knew I knew these people who they you know, they don't have kids in high school, but they know exactly what's going on at all the PTA meetings and all the football games and just because they're they're members of a community um and and i think in a lot of ways that's what i i think what a lot of you all have responded to is that it it i hope that our fans feel like they have become part of a community um in night vale um outside of cecil uh some of my favorites are i love koshek um (laughs) 
is one of my. I think there was one night at the bar where I accosted Jeffrey and was like, "You, you need to bring back the floating cat. Bring it back, because that's adorable." Um, that was yeah. He's one of my favorites, and you know what I really love, and it kind of flies under the radar a lot of times. I like the, 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 the tales at the end of the episode where it's like, next up on Night Vale Community Radio, and then it's just some bonkers, <laughs> crazy thing, you know, like now the sound of a, a G chord for the next <laughs> six hours, or um, I, I think my personal, yeah, yeah. My, my personal favorite, though, is wait, wait, don't, no, please don't. Because um, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but like, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is one of the few ones I try to catch. And I literally laughed out loud when I read that. And, you know, I had to stop recording. I was like, pull, pull it together. Pull it together. You can do this. And I want to know what happens on Wait, Wait, Don't. No, please don't. It's like some horrible Japanese game show in my mind. Where, like, you know, the prize you win is your life. You get to walk out alive. I don't know. But, yeah, like, but all those, like, little, like, the little tale endings. And also, that just does so much more to add to the complete world of Night Vale and, and the sort of the concept of Night Vale community radio. Because, again, going back to, like, when I was a kid... You know, you would book, like, you know, Knoxville Public Access TV room number B, you know, and you had from 7 to 9, and, you know, at, like, 8.55, the guys who do the all-wrestling talk or whatever would be, like, knocking on the door, being like, no, we're in next. You know, so there there was this, like, constantly running rotation of, you know, what is next? What is next on Night Vale Community Rate? Like, what is on there besides Cecil and his, you know, like, up-to-the-date reporting? Um, so I like, I like those a lot. I think they help, yeah. you know, suggest what else is happening in this world. Yeah. Um, my, and which kind of gets to, you know, that community aspect, my, my last question, which is, um, what do you think it is? I mean, this, this podcast has taken off in a way I don't think you guys expected. No. <laughs> Um, how many people did they turn away today? Thousands, probably. Thousands. I, assume, I assume. I didn't yeah, yeah, yeah. All of them. <laughs> They're like, ugh. I assume that everyone who came to the convention yeah, today yeah. were trying to get in. We have to go see like, Doctor Who instead. Yeah, yeah, I just rounded up to several thousand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but what do you guys think it is that people have attached to in this show? Well, th- oh, well you should go. Yeah. Um, I, I think like the, the Cecil Carlos plotline is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know... Why, why do you think people have latched onto them? Well, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> have you thought about this? I have. I have. And I've been thinking about it for a very long time. Um, as uh, someone who uh, identifies as gay, um, I remember growing up and uh, going to, like, you know, like, going to the bookstore and going to the, like, gay and lesbian section and thinking to myself, this is it. This is what we have. This one shelf. That's it. That's, and it's, you know, like we have some short stories and we have a lot of, you know, some history and things like that. But there was very, you know, like, like uh, the, the fiction all 
centered around being gay. Mm -hmm. Like, it was defined by that. And so I think what I, I hear a lot from the fans, and I share their sentiment, is here is something where being gay is just one aspect of a much larger world that we live in. And that world is beautiful and terrifying and, um, you know, insane and funny. And it just fits in there. And for me, you know, being like a gay artist working on a show like this, like, I like gay stuff. <laughs> gay stuff is cool. But I mean, you know, I so many times I see independent films and you know, independent books, and they're writing the, oh, this is gay fiction. Right. Well, what does that mean? Like, is, like, does that mean you have to be gay to read it? Do you have to be gay to write it? Like, what? I don't understand. It's almost agenda-driven, whereas yeah. this gets to live in the characters. Yeah, in, and, in and, and, like, just one aspect of Cecil is yeah. his sexuality. And on top of that... In this crazy world of Night Vale, his sexuality and his you know, relationship with another man is the least weird thing to happen on a daily basis. Um, yeah. So it really, like, it makes me feel so good, like, to go back and think back where I was when I was, like, 15, 16, and thinking, yes, this is it. Like, we're, we're making it. We're, like, expand, we're pushing boundaries out and saying, you know, this isn't a gay podcast. <laughs> we're not going to check your card at the door. <laughs> so I love that. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you guys think? Uh, just briefly, uh, people are, are latching on to. I mean, I, I mostly think Cecil's right. Like, I think that that is a huge part of it. I, I you know, uh, uh, egotistical part of me hopes the writing has something to do with it. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I feel like people should get what they get out of it. Like they, you know, if that's the thing that that makes it the most important for them, then that's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a lot of it. I think also just the the whole serialized storyline aspect is something that. You know, in, in any form, you know, once you get into it, you're kind of in it because it just keeps moving, um, and that helps a lot. Was was that from the get-go presumed to be, you know, was that part of the design that it was going to be so serialized? Um, well, from the start, uh, I, I like when we were, Jeffrey and I were having uh, a drink and talking about the idea of doing this show. Um, I, I One of the things I said to him was, I, I, I really want this to have very strict continuity because... I think we can do anything we want. We can be as weird or poetic or just do things with language that we want to do as long as we're consistent about it so that people can feel like it's an actual world that they can live in, that they can believe in. And so as long as you're consistent, it doesn't matter how weird that consistency is as long as it just is. Um, so that was always part of it. I, we really weren't that into telling big narrative stories for a while. We've gotten more into that as things have gone on and we've just had more history to build up and at this point we're like we, we kind of have more ideas about oh this is what's going to happen in six months and here's where we are now and so we have to spend a little time thinking about how we're going to get there and that was, that was nothing we did in the, the first year was entirely episode by episode. But yeah. what's great about the ongoing too is that you know there's, the continuity is not a barrier to entry either. You mm -hmm. absolutely get the relationships among these characters, e even if you're jumping in. Yeah, mm -hmm. hopefully that is the case, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I had a, 
I, I had a friend who hadn't uh, listened to the show come and see us in uh, San Francisco, and he he got it right away, and he understood what was going on right away, and uh, and he appreciated it right away. So I do think that there is something that you can do. I think you can just mm-hmm. jump into it, and it's still fun. Yeah, yeah. I will say we should we should touch on this for a minute. Um, I got to see you guys when you were in Los Angeles last week for that was your second live show, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, how is the live show, which is a relatively new thing for you, a different beast? Oh, it's great! It's it's amazing because you 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 have a yeah you you have to relate to the audience. Cecil has to relate to the audience. Mara has to re, you know relate mm-hmm. to the audience. You don't get uh, yeah you don't get three takes uh, to sit around <laughs> and and you yeah you you have to react to what people give you and people and, and we found that at our live shows the, the fans have given us so much you know at the live show I mean yeah. they really really respond to what's happening and and we're able to play up things in a way we're able to play up things bigger or things smaller. Or, take a pause and really respond to what's happening uh, in the moment. And so that, I think that that's been really fantastic. And, you know, with Cecil's background as a, as a, as a classically trained actor yeah. and, and also working with the neo-futurists where you have to make things quickly, do things quickly. It's not improvised theater at all, but you have to be one with the audience. You you really have to be eye-to-eye with, with the audience and see them in the same room as you. And, and Cecil's uh, really tremendous at that, uh, too. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. There's something very intimate about the podcast. Um, it's just a guy on a microphone, um, in a, you know, sealed booth. And in, in the live shows, you can't recreate that. Like it's not a theatricalization of the world. Like we don't have an on-air sign. We're not going there, you know? And so there is that give and take between the audience and the performer, um, and, I don't know. It's a lot of fun. It's just fun. <laughs> yeah, it um, was. It was. I mean, the audience at that Largo show, which is about a two. I think they sat two sixty at that show, yeah. two seventy. Uh, and seeing you, Cecil, in front of them was unbelievable. Oh, thank you. I mean, you, you, you gave a, an amazing performance. Uh, you're going to ask your question. Uh, please stand up when you ask. It just is easier for us to hear us here. Uh, I'll repeat the question for the podcast, and then uh, these guys will answer it. So, who has a question right off the bat? Yes, in the pink hair. <laughs> The question is, what's the deal with Steve Carlsberg? <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, sure. Uh, I don't remember which of us created Steve Carlsberg the first time, uh, but Steve it was, uh, Carlsberg. It was PTA meeting, I think, so I think yeah. it was you. Um, I'm, okay. so, uh, he was just always there. Yeah. I think the thing with, with Steve is, uh, and I touched on this earlier, which is that I think for me, I remember writing the first time of like, uh, of, uh, I remember writing at one point in time, Cecil, you know, tearing into Steve Carlsberg, and he and he became this he became this thing to me. Like, yeah, it was like I said earlier. For for me, he represents the the mundane aspect of life that we're really upset about. You know, my, you know, uh, so many like uh, you know family members that listen to radio that is much more agitating and real world political <laughs> and it becomes really hard to like watch those sh- TV shows and listen to those radio programs and because they're talking about big picture issues like we should be so mad about this big topic in politics and, and I think what's really great is, is that we have a world wherein yeah you do have a giant glow cloud dropping dead animals all over uh, the town and, and seeping radiation into everything but God damn, Steve Carlsberg is the worst. And, and he's the he worst is. because oh. he has a crappy car that he can't even keep the hubcaps on. Um, and, he, and he, yeah, and he makes terrible scones and just, uh, or brings terrible scones. Yeah, whatever. And so that, that to me just represents a, that, that community context that, that the things closest to you are the things that we are most um, 
passionate about. Where, where did the name come from? I have no idea. Steve is just kind of a generic comedy name, Absolutely. right? Like, just for, like, a generic guy. And then, um, I don't know. Like, I feel like, I, I feel like there's something about maybe seeing something on a map, or it must have been a word I saw, or maybe there's a beer, or uh, there's something. And I just think I just yeah. grabbed it. Yeah. Right? Cheese, there's a cheese. Jarlsberg? Jarlsberg, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, other questions? Yes, right here. All right, so, so one of the theories on Tumblr is none of this is happening. Cecil's on an acid trip. Uh, Cecil, what do you think about that? Um, I've, I have heard this theory. Um, <laughs> and it is a very valid theory. Um, this might just be a normal community radio show, and this guy, Cecil, drops acid and sits in front of a microphone and lives in a totally normal town. Um, I love a lot of the existential crisis that Cecil goes through. Like we were in, in LA, we went back and we did two older episodes uh, with some added material for the LA Podfest. And it was, it was really cool to revisit those because it was one of the episodes where Cecil has this moment of just, am I, am I alone? Am I, is this microphone plugged into anything at all? <laughs> And those, to me, are the foundation of what makes this so terrifying. Like, that's the David Lynch aspect of this, where it's, you know, you are in a dark universe all unto your own making, and there is no one there but you. And that's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, as a writer, I guess, I, I, I don't know, I find that theory kind of boring. And that it's just sort of like, then what are the stakes? Like, what's mm -hmm. the point? Mm -hmm. yeah. If none of it's happening, then what's the story? I, I, I don't know. I don't think anything is real, so I feel like... Yeah, no, Jeffrey, <laughs> must be sort of Jeffrey kind of is that theory just all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, again, there's continuity in Night Vale that there isn't in an acid trip, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, I've, never, I've never done acid, so I can't yeah. tell, but yeah. still. Uh, other questions out here? Yes, right here. Where did the idea that the internet keeps dying all the time? Oh, the intern. Oh, the intern. I have yeah, time warner cables, sense. so the other <laughs> question is true. Yeah, no, that happens as well as well. Who are a sponsor, right? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, that was just something that started happening, I feel like. Like, yeah. when, when did we first... It was... I think Leland, right? In yeah, the, it was in, Leland yeah. in... No, 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 no. It was, um, it was station management. Station management ate an intern, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just something we kept doing. And then uh, I think in... No, it, yeah, in station management, I wrote in this joke that... Or maybe uh, this is one of those old ones. I don't remember which one of us wrote it. But there was this joke written in about how we... It, it, was, it was written in this joke. It was something about how it just seemed really common to see. So, like, this was just, of course, uh, another yeah. intern died. And so that, kind of going off that, we just started killing other interns. And it was the same. I think there's also, like, the trope uh, in, in a lot of, in a lot of uh, yeah, in a lot of stories. Of, I think, too, right off the top, uh, you, you have the red shirts in Star Trek. And, and you also have uh, the drummer in Spinal Tap. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm yeah. more of the Spinal Tap speed. But, yeah, there's that thing where you just, yeah, you have... That's the ongoing joke. Like, you just can't keep yeah. that person around. Yeah. Uh, other questions? Yeah. What, where, where did the weather as different bands, different songs come from? Um, so that was something that just was in from the start, obviously, because it was in the pilot. Um, 
I had this idea where just different segments would be different things. There would be like a traffic that was a different guest monologuist and a weather that was different music. And then it just all seemed too chaotic. And so I just I took everything else out. But I don't know. It just always – I don't have any sort of logic or explanation that I can give you. It just always seemed right to me that the weather was music. And how do you tend to find those bands? Um, for the first year or so, those were mostly bands that have just, or musicians that I've just always loved, that I've loved for years, and so I just reached out to them. Um, there was a few that Jeffrey brought in in the first year, uh, Rachel Kahn, uh, yeah. Robin Eigner. Um, and just going forward, we, got, we, we opened up submissions for weather for a little bit and then promptly got enough for the next, I don't know, year and a half. So uh, going forward, there's going to be more listener submissions and, and mixed in, although I, I do still reserve the right to approach musicians I really like and be like I mean the one who was it the last episode I think the last episode was uh, just a guy I saw playing in a park in Barcelona and I just liked the song (laughs) cool yes right up front yo totally yeah Yeah, what what was the deal with the rabbits are not what they seem opening yeah uh, you know it's very funny because I I wrote that line down and it went into the script and it was just something where I was where I was thinking were you just playing with the idea of like in any type of like weird town USA, that classic storyline where you Indiana or whatever, like those those old uh, Twilight Zone. There's a lot of shows like that and stories that that, that everything is not as it seems, right? Like that that's the underlying current of it all. Like it's just everything is different than you think it's going to be. And uh, and I wrote that line down and I just had it. And then it wasn't until Joseph sent me the track of Cecil saying it when I'm like, oh shit, Log Lady. <laughs> yeah, that's just owls. Yeah, okay. Well, there it is, and it's great, and I, I'm fine. It's like I, I'm glad I didn't say owls. Although, had I done that, I would have known that. that I was would have immediately been like, um, yeah, Shepherd? Um, yeah you on? didn't write that. So, but yeah, it was just one of those things where I just came up with not that <clears throat> not that original idea, just a very famous line, just one word off. Is really that's it. That it's was an just homage. A, at that it's point. an homage. Yeah. yeah, I totally uh, just as an homage. It's a classic yeah. case of an accidental homage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, the frightening-looking person back there. <laughs> um, Let's, this is a question about the Apache tracker right. character. I don't think he ever became a martyr hero. <laughs> at least not in my eyes. No. Um, yeah, that was a ca- that was a really a case of like the episode by episode basis thing where we were just trying to find things for each character each episode, and so just trying to find. It was just, it seemed like such a one-note character. You know, there just was nothing else to him. It was just kind of a one joke. And so I was just trying to find anything else to do with him. It kind of comes back to what Cecil was talking about, that these characters are not just one thing. They're multifaceted. And so having the opportunity, I think, to show another facet of this character. And we we sort of hate the character, and and we just, we... And the thing was is that we There's a reason we killed him off and then just never mentioned him again. It just got to a point where we just got really tired of writing him. We were like, let's kill him. And then we're also like... But then 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 we thought the... Yeah, the way of taking that was like, all right, so he dies in a way that is helpful because it saves another character. And then they, they say, well, you did heroic things, so we'll build a statue to you, but we're going to bury it in the desert. We're so <laughs> embarrassed by what a racist you are. <laughs> and that was, that's the essence of it. It's just that ultimately he's a racist asshole. <laughs> and you don't want anything to do with that guy, even if he does a really good thing, right? You don't want that person Racism symbolizing... Trump's... Uh, yeah. Her- 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 uh, well, and, and to say, say to this, I mean... Growing up in Texas, I went to Texas A&M University, and I, uh, on the campus is a statue of Saul Ross, who a lot of 
parts of central Texas are named after this person, and he was a slave owner, and it was always a really terrible thing to be like, you have this giant statue of a slave owner in the middle of your campus, and what does that say? Like, how, what are we saying about ourselves? And yeah, I think that's a really uh, important discussion, but they unfortunately leave it there. They don't bury it in the desert, which maybe <laughs> they should. Yeah, I, I always love the Apache tracker just because of the ire that he brought up and how annoying and racist he is, um, and that might also be because the public high school that I went for two, for two years, our mascot was the Indians. <laughs> so, so it was like, oh God, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, more questions? Yes, right back here. Yeah, that's a good question. How much uh, of Cecil's readings lead to you know recurring bits for you guys? How much does it influence the other way? I mean, a lot. Like things like John Peters, you know, the farmer. That was something that was intentional. Like mm-hmm. it, repeating language is interesting, so we we do that quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I feel like Cecil kind of created the character's personality, and then we just worked off that. Um, if you want to, oh sure. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes we just go back and listen to old episodes. You you kind of hear uh, the way Cecil. Talk. I mean, I I think I think that for me, I think as we Joseph and I developed the Carlos character, I think some of that come out of that because you you hear the way Cecil. <laughs> talks about him and you feel like there's a lot more to experience there that the Cecil's giving this something deeper than we thought maybe that character might be you know he begins in the pilot episode as just a an outsider like the one person not from this town and he kind of yeah he's got this perfect hair and perfect teeth and things like that and you see him and there's something like kind of scary about that person coming to your town of like what are they doing here but then it evolves into something much deeper and and I think yeah that uh yeah, so we find moments like that, or or even Steve Carlsberg, which just it's it's amazing the vitriol he has for him. So we're like, we have to bring that back from time to time. It's great. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say the main thing I get from Cecil's performance is just the willingness to challenge him with harder or stranger things, because I just know he can rise up to that. And so at first, I only gave him things where it's like I knew how it was going to go, but now I'll just give him a bit that seemed. That I, I don't even know really how it's supposed to sound. And I'll just be like, I wonder what Cecil will do with that. Mm-hmm. And I just, the willingness to do that. Yeah. More? Yes, right in the back. Yeah, tell, tell us about your relationship with the audience and how much do you think of the audience when you write? How much are you writing for yourselves? I think mostly we, we have written for ourselves. I mean, in the sense of we're trying to tell a story. And, and as we go through, obviously, we're the, we, we hear from the audience more often. So uh, we we don't. Yeah, there's no way not to hear what the audience has to say and, and what they feel. I mean, ultimately, we, we still want to keep making the show that we made because the, the audience came about finding the show based off of Joseph and I writing the story we want to tell, and we want to continue telling the stories we want to tell because that's what the audience initially liked and can hopefully is continuing to like. Um, but we certainly, yeah, we don't we don't think of it as a... We've never thought of it as a target audience because looking at it, you guys here and, and seeing the audiences we've seen at, at Roulette and Largo and some of these places we've performed to, uh, you know, it, it wasn't expected that we would see this room of people or the, the, the ages or, or the, the, the different backgrounds of people that we've met. And, and so to say that we know everything about you and can target to each of you is hard to say. Like, it's hard to say I know who you are, and, and, uh, but I want to hear, uh, you know, it's nice hearing from people and being able to, to, to know that the show fits with what people are liking. But target audience feels sort of... Yeah. Corporate. It feels like yeah, oh, I don't we've think... got to build the fifteen to twenty-five demographic, and I... that's just not something we ever think about. We want to continue telling the story we want to tell, and hopefully, that always gains more listeners. Uh, yeah, to I, our show. I can't imagine trying to write to a target audience. That sounds so hard, and and just 
and po- icky. Po- yeah, po- just icky. It just yeah. seems like it would be poison to the creative process to try and do <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, and ironically, that's where you get a lot of narcissistic writing. I yeah. think when you when you ironically like when when you don't write to a target audience, then you come up with a lot of really interesting stuff when you're writing for yourself. And then when you do try, it just comes off as pantering and fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have time for one more if it's going to have a brief answer. Yeah. Does anyone want to change their hand raise? Yes. You're adamant that this will be a brief answer. Yeah. Who would you vote? <laughs> for whom would you vote in the next election? <laughs> Mark can take this one. Well... <laughs> I, I think, yeah, well, actually, and unfortunately for me, I do think that Hiram McDaniels is probably the favorite, and, and he is, he is a, a worthy adversary. Um, I, do, I do, the faceless old woman, though, she's one of those people, I don't know, maybe, maybe like, like Hillary Clinton in a way, where like, even when she, if she's not president, you know that she's like secretly running things. You know, she, she's got powers that, like, actually, like I, I actually kind of find Hillary Clinton terrifying, and I think the faceless old woman is a little bit like that, too. Um, so, so, yeah, I have to remain neutral on this point, uh, because I, I, I can kind of see it both ways. I think it's probably going to be Hiram, if, at least it would be if elections weren't meaningless. Um, but uh, uh, in, in Night Vale, guys, not in real life. Um, <laughs> vote in real life. But yeah, I think it's probably going to be Hiram, but, uh, but um, I, I do think that the faceless old woman, she's going she's gonna to still be there. She'll always be there. <laughs> uh, I want to uh, just very quickly ask a couple more questions. Um, uh, starting with Mara and going down the line. What are you? What other entertainment are you taking in? What are you watching? What are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to? What's getting getting you excited these days? Oh, um, I really I, I love Risk. I've been on Risk. Risk is a fun show. Um, I I despite my feud with Ira Glass, it's not a real feud. Um, I, I do love This American Life. I've always loved Radio Lab. Um, let's see. Uh, Watching, I've been watching. I've been watching a lot of Louis lately uh, because I feel like he makes the again he makes the mundane really weird and the weird really mundane and and that is sort of uh, a, a fascination of mine. That's something that I've I've always loved. Oh, and there's a podcast called Away with Words that I love because I'm a big word geek. Yes, yeah. One of my friends <laughs> loves that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, I. I have to say that there's there's uh, two podcasts that I'm just listening to nonstop right now that are just kind of top of my list. And one is one that I always listen to, which is Indie Feed Performance Poetry. That's a, I always plug that podcast because I think it's tremendous. You get a real wide diversity of, of poetic voices and really great people performing their own work rather than uh, pre, uh, poetry by other people. Uh, and the other one that I just started listening to a few months ago that I'm just absolutely obsessed with is The Read. If you get a chance to listen to the podcast, The Read, it's amazing. The Read is the best. You guys, you just, you just check it out. It's amazing. I don't follow pop culture at all, and it's two people talking pop culture, and they're amazing at it. And I just get meta information about <laughs> pop culture from them, and they're really great. Yeah, so check that out. Um, so I don't know if you, you guys heard of this TV show, Breaking Bad, but... Um, <laughs> No, I've been do- doing a lot of reading lately. Uh, I'm reading the new Thomas Pynchon. I'm enjoying that. I've been reading uh, the Great Railroad Bazaar, Paul Thoreau. That's been interesting. I've just been catching up on a lot of reading since I've been doing a lot of traveling lately. Cool. Um, uh, the last book that I was like pretty profoundly moved by was uh, The Fault in Our Stars uh, um, by John Green. And man, I had just... I was on an airplane going from L.A. to New York just crying, <laughs> like physically, don't, like ugly crying, like don't, not even trying to hide it. 
<laughs> and I'm sure you picked up the book to distract you. That's it. <laughs> and then, and I was like, oh, this looks like a lovely romp. Um, but no, that was amazing. And I've, I, I've literally given that book to so many friends of mine since then. Uh, the last movie that I had just had a really fun time watching was Room 237, um, which if you like conspiracy <laughs> theories, that one, ooh, get ready. That's a doozy. Um, whether you believe it or not or agree with it or not, like just... You know, just like, and, and I love, um, I mean, like, The Shining is an amazing horror film. And I love the sort of like uh, uh, 70s, early 80s horror is like, like classic, <laughs> classic to me. And so I loved like getting down and nitty and gritty into like shot by shot conspiracy theory uh, <laughs> kind of. But yeah, I had a good time watching that. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, very, very briefly, because uh, she just held up the time is up sign. What can you tell us uh, about the future of Night Vale? Very little. <laughs> Please give a round of applause to your panelists. Mara, Jeffrey, Joseph, and Cecil from Welcome to Night Vale. Thank you all for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Thank <laughs> you.